This is the Stoppage Time Podcast from WEGL 91.1, giving you the latest on all the big talking points from the Premier League and the Champions League. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stoppage Time. I'm your host, Chris Basinger, and joining me in the studio is Harrison Schooler. Harrison, how was your weekend? I had a great weekend this weekend. Uh, How about yourself? Uh, Doing pretty well. After that football game gave me a lot of anxiety, I'm feeling pretty good now. (laughs) I have recovered. And joining us through the phone line for the first time this season, uh, a guest from last year, Tanner Passifume. Tanner, how are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm a little cold right now since I'm on my porch, but uh, I'll do anything for the show. So Glad to hear it. Uh, We're going to start this week, of course, with the most talked about subject of the past week, Gunnersaurus Watch. Mesut Ozil has offered to pay Gunnersaurus' wages out of the 350,000 pounds he makes a week. Uh, Harrison, will this gesture change Arsenal fans' views of the player? Uh, you know, I don't really think it's, uh, I don't think it's Arsenal fans that have such a problem with Mesut Ozil as uh, members of the board, possibly. And no, I don't think it'll change much, but nice move. <laughs> Uh, Tanner, reports say that Gunnersaurus could return once supporters return to the stadium. Uh, when do you think that it could happen given the 143,000 new cases in England in the last 10 days? Yeah, so I know that they were aiming for like October, but it's October now and that clearly isn't happening. Um, I, I think they may just have to wait until after the winter break, like probably sometime in January, if they're good, which... With COVID, I, I think it's been pretty obvious that people can't always follow directions and rules um, when it comes to that. Like, who who knows, honestly? Uh, it's just been bewildering to see everywhere. So. Yeah, definitely. There has been a big spike uh, in the past week alone just in England. But, uh, of course, Arsenal's next match is away at Manchester City. Uh, would you say that they're at a slight disadvantage after Gunnar Soros, who is a key member of of the squad and a morale booster got the boot? Oh, of course. Of course. Gunnersaurus is, is a, a key part for what Arteta wants to do. And I, I really cannot believe uh, that that the, the director of football at Arsenal and that Sam Kroenke sanctioned that move. It, it's a shame, really. I was devastated when I heard. Uh, thank you for humoring me uh, on that. Of course, this is a, a serious podcast, and we're going to get to the serious news. Um which, of course, this week was Project Big Picture, which was proposed by both Liverpool and Manchester United's owners, respectively, and has the support of EFL chairman Rick Perry. Um, And it it is said that it would bring about the biggest change to the Premier League in a generation. Uh, So let's just talk about what's good and what's not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, state part of the plan to each of you, and I want you to say whether you are for it or against it. Uh, and why. So uh, the first part uh, is going to be reducing the Premier League from 20 clubs to 18 clubs. What are your thoughts? I'm not really in favor of it. I am not in favor of most of this, but no, I think they need to keep it at 20, and uh, we can continue on as I explain piece by piece why this is just a a not-so-great proposal. Mm. Tanner? Yeah, I, I I just think it decreases the mobility from the lower divisions. Uh, which I mean that that really can hamper uh, like a championship a championship side that maybe is like right on the edge or a, or a formerly like great Premier League side like uh, like Nottingham Forest who's been like kind of withering in the 
and the championship at they're one step further away from getting back to the Premier League and all of its like potential to literally save a club. Yeah, and it seems like it's going to be getting harder and harder uh, based off this plan for uh, teams from the championship to be able to get into the Premier League side, especially with um, after the bottom two um, get kicked out of the Premier League. Then after that, two more teams would be relegated, but the 16th place team in the Premier League would then have to play the third, fourth, and fifth, fifth place teams of uh, the EFL championship in a tournament style playoff. Um, would it be Ben? Would you like to see that if the Premier League remained at 20 clubs? Do you think that could be a benefit? Yeah, I think that would be an interesting way to kind of go about adding a little more competition and seeing, giving an opportunity to those who are going down to possibly stay up. I think that is actually one of the interesting pieces to this whole proposal. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I know the Bundesliga has has something like that, but also I still feel like it kind of is a disadvantage for those championship clubs that are trying to come up because a really good Premier League club in like a typical standing, uh, they're still going to have however many years they've been up of spending Premier League money and making their and paying their players Premier League wages. I mean, it's 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 not a bad idea. Like I think a lot of is. But I wouldn't say that it's a good idea. It just kind of adds more stuff to do. And when they're trying to get rid of multiple things, I don't I don't know why you would want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the more controversial parts of the plan is granting special status for the nine longest-serving clubs uh, in the Premier League, which at this point in time would be Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester City, Southampton, Everton, and West Ham United. Um, granting them special status in order to uh, vote to make changes to uh, player wages, contracts, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it would only take six out of the nine votes. So this uh, seems to be a move to consolidate power within the the big six. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's exactly what this is. This is the piece to the whole proposal that everything else is kind of sugarcoating over this this very piece um, this is clearly a power grab, very power move by both United and Liverpool to kind of push for something like this to where basically all the power is structured towards the top of the league and the fact that you can exclude the other nine, the other three of the nine longest standing members. I mean, it's it's very clear what the plan is there. And yeah, it's impossible to see how something like this could be approved when you have older clubs such as Villa and Leeds that would be of no benefit to this and it would just be even harder for them. Um, that was, well, okay. I had, I had a couple of other issues, but I'd probably say that that's my biggest issue with this. And like Everton would stand to benefit from this. Um, and I mean, both of your old clubs would too, but it, 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 like Harrison said, it's a power, it's a power grab. Um, like there's also no guarantee that what new decisions say they're going to do, but like, if we're being honest, it's not really new decision makers. We all know that the top six has an outsized influence. On, on the decisions that the Premier League makes. Um, it, it essentially just, like, it, it just doesn't guarantee that they would not vote to change the regulations to further their financial gain. I mean, like, it, 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 it's them trying to consolidate as much of the power as they can. But in addition to that, Harris is right. He mentioned Leeds and Villa. But you can go even deeper than that. Like, among a multitude of them, there's, they've just been trying to lock in the current elite as like a permanent elite. 
Like, if this were happening in a different era, the teams in power would look different. If this happened in the early 2000s after City just came up, it would be nine different teams. The Big Six could have included Nottingham Forest or Blackburn Rovers or Villa or Newcastle, depending on when this would have been proposed. And I think the waning and waxing of who is competitive is part of what makes English football and the top of the division in particular so great. And I think this is just uh, the current Big Six or whatever it is is them trying to consolidate power and help their finances and specifically make the investments look better for the owners. Yeah, and another way that they would be able to consolidate power, uh, given this proposal, is that it allows them to vote on uh, whether or not they're going to allow uh, someone to take over a club, such as what we saw um, with the, uh, the attempted takeover in Newcastle. So theoretically, these teams would be able to vote down other takeovers such as what happened with City, what happened with Chelsea, um, so limiting you know the sphere of the the sphere of influence uh, on those teams and making sure that um, another uh, oil country can't come in and buy another team and hope to to buy their way to the top. Um, so yeah, I I'm going to agree on this one. I see this as a, a classless move, um, but on the other hand, uh, part of this proposal would be. Um, a $250 million, um, uh, million pound, excuse me, gift to uh, the EFL to compensate for lost match day revenue, and then also 25% of Premier League and Football League match revenue would go to EFL clubs, which is a major increase from the 4% that they're already getting right now. Yeah, so this is it. This is the the low dangling fruit for these people to grab onto as they're so desperate for money because the COVID situation has drastically impacted lower league clubs. You got guys at uh, Accrington, Accrington Stanley who are willing to drive 200 miles to pick up coronavirus tests to save the club 300 pounds. So yeah, when you offer 250 million and 25 percent and um. 25% of those profits from match day going to these clubs, it sounds like an incredible financial help to these people and with the way so with the way football is growing it's it's not a good move it's too early i mean this is just biting right when you've been offered something without really giving any thought and this is this is not the move the game is only getting bigger the money's only getting bigger if you can last if you can really see out this troublesome financial time without going under i think you should i think you should run that risk and i think money will grow as the game gets back to how it should how it should be and how it will be eventually but no i think right now if you take that answer i mean you're just you're playing for the now immediately without any consideration of how the how the future may shape out yeah and that's that's another part i have an issue with this actually is probably my biggest issue with it, it it's the the fact that uh, Liverpool and Manchester United, along with the EFL president, who was previously the Premier League president, uh, I believe in the early to mid-90s, he, they're using COVID and the dire straits that it has put some clubs in. And, and, I mean, even before COVID, we've seen clubs like Bury and Bolton get into some serious, serious troubles, and Wigan Athletic even. Like it, they have gotten into issues, and it seems like they're using this financial hardship to try and get clubs to agree to things that they otherwise would not agree to. And it, it seems like they are trying to get them to take a one-time investment and also the supposed like change in revenue sharing where it would rise from 8% to 25%, which is great. And I, I, I kind of wish they would keep that. But it, what they're agreeing to doesn't have to stay. 
once this once this is in place, the people who are in charge, which will be those nine voting members, would be able to just be like, oh, you know, we did it with COVID, we can go back to normal. And I, I just don't think that it is, it, it's like what Harrison said, they're, they're playing for the now and they're not considering the impact uh, down the road. And it's just, to me, it's just a really, really disgusting kind of use of the pandemic and the situation that has put a lot of people and, and even businesses and clubs into. Yeah, just another piece to add to this. I think this dangerously allows these bigger clubs to possibly move towards the dark depths of the future in which we see a European Super League, which has been quietly discussed on and off for the last two years. And I think this would allow those big clubs to put themselves in a position to be in that league and make it easier to probably put that league together. Yeah, um, one of the the more interesting parts of the deal that doesn't have uh, to do with um, match day revenue um, or or funding or anything like that is uh, a proposed to the loan changes allowing clubs to have 15 players on loan domestically uh, and up to four at a single club. It seems like this is something that Chelsea would really benefit from considering how many people they had out on loan and were returning to Chelsea. Does this benefit the Premier League or does it only benefit the top six sides like the other things in this deal? I think it benefits the Premier League because it gives you a lot of opportunities to loan out young players. And we've seen that a lot of Premier League teams have taken more interest in their academy, given that financially it's it's hard to go out and grab some quality players these days without paying above the average because you're in the Premier League and everyone is well aware of how much money you're making. And I think it would give a good opportunity to academies in the Premier League to really get some players out to the championship. I mean, they have that opportunity all the time and they don't use it sometimes, but... Uh, this, I mean, overall, this this proposal it does not lean in favor of everyone else. Like there is there is there's no benefit other than the payment for now and uh, some of the future payments of match day revenue, and that even still that is not enough. The the loan thing, I, like I think the loan thing would be okay. Um, I think increasing that, I, you're right. It would allow players or allow clubs to loan more people out to the championship, but it's not like they're doing it at a high rate right now anyway. Um, but like, I don't see anything wrong with that, but there's just so many issues with this proposal that it, it really doesn't matter that they they got one thing right. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem like most of this is focused on, uh, uh, benefiting the big clubs and that they did tack on all these other extra little things, uh, in order to seem like this is going to be beneficial for everything, uh, for, for all the clubs and for everyone. But one of the things that they also added on was a special fan charter, uh, including a proposed returning to state, uh, a proposed return to safe standing, and a twenty-pound cap on away ticket prices. See the money that is an excellent. That's that's something they've always done right. That's something that a lot of these clubs have tried to do right: is sticking to their financial their prices on tickets. That's something that United prides themselves on. And, and this is a really good move because we all know about the pains of away traveling in England. It, it is it is not easy and they do their best to make sure match times don't really dictate that you're traveling so late after hours and such. But again, this is just a small piece to try and grab a little more positivity from an overall negative proposal. And just to add yeah. a slight more bit of context, 
They're offering 250 million pounds. The league itself is worth 11 billion. The top six make up 10.3 billion of that 11. Starting to sound like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tanner, go uh, the ahead. The ticket thing, I think, is yeah. The ticket thing, I think, is kind of like it's just one of the little things they're offering to try and make it like over better with the public. But I think that the public can can kind of see through it a little bit, um, especially the public from the uh, lower fourteen or whatever you want to call it, the, the remaining fourteen teams in the Premier League that aren't part of that established top six. Um, and like it's just. It's just a little bit of a carrot before they before they get the stick. So. Mm. And I, I've saved this one for last because we've had debates on it in the past, and um, I always love bringing it up and talking about it. But uh, w- one of the other things in this proposal is the proposed abolition of the League Cup, now known as the Carabao Cup, and the Community Shield. Uh, I'll give my thoughts on this on the end, but I want to hear from you guys first. Again, Easy, something been complained about by managers and uh, various people inside the game, not just supporters. I mean, supporters don't necessarily have a lot to complain about about more football being played. I mean, it's it's more entertainment, but not managers. It's been a real concern from clubs about the accumulation of fixtures. I mean, Tottenham is just playing through an absolute brutal list of fixtures, not only due to COVID, but just simply for the fact that you've got to worry about the EFL Cup, the Europa League, and as well as the Premier League. And yeah, I mean, once again, low-hanging fruit attractive to people because it gets rid of basically games that a lot of teams just feel are needless these days. Now, if we take this away, does Manchester City have an opportunity to win a trophy? Yeah, honestly, it would hurt Manchester City more than anybody. I mean, uh, yeah, Pep would be absolutely no, no, furious. No, 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 no. No, it would hurt. Okay, so I, I actually, I'm like, I'm cool with the, with the League Cup. Um, I have been. But, like, I get why, why like Liverpool and United and like those clubs would not view it as a trophy. Like it's not a major trophy. I think that the FA cup is the premier league trophy is and then any European trophy is obviously, but that it would eliminate one route to get to Europe. Right. But, but next season, and like obviously, right. I I believe with the, with the new proposed, um, the UEFA Europa, uh, it's not the league, but it's some other name. Uh, Europa Conference, like a, I believe. Yeah, conference, winning, yeah, winning yeah, the yeah. Carabao Cup would get you into Europe, but it would be in the division underneath the Europa League. That's still revenue that that, that certain clubs wouldn't have, and I'm mainly speaking as an Everton supporter here. Those that is that is money that we would not have if we weren't in some European competition, uh, no matter what it is named. Um, but like it's it just takes away that route, but also you don't, you don't get the money from lower, like those lower level fixtures. When Liverpool goes to Tranmere Rovers to play a game, yeah, they're in the same city, but it, it, the, the money that Tranmere would bring in from those gate receipts is so much more than they could make from a regular league two game or a regular league one game. Like it's, it's, it's beneficial to those lower clubs because of those fixtures. And they already got rid of the replays because they didn't want to have that congestion, and I get that. But I think eliminating it completely would just be – I think it will happen eventually, um, but I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. The Community Shield, like, fine. They are the, the, Europa, the European Super Cup already exists. We don't need another, like, meaningless fixture. So. Yeah, and I, I believe that argument that you made uh, for why the, the Carabao Cup should – 
stick around, uh, has also been made um, for the Nations League. Uh, a lot of the, the bigger um, countries and teams don't see the use in it. Uh, but if you look at how much uh, countries like uh, Latvia and Ukraine and uh, 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 Croatia um, and stuff like that bring in uh, because of those games, they're really benefiting from it, even though uh, England can and Germany can hardly see the 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 use in them. But um, speaking of international break, uh, although they are not playing, it would not be an international break if we didn't speculate about the U.S. men's national team. Uh, so when club football returns, uh, these are the players to watch in Europe right now. Uh, Josh Sargent uh, is 20 years old at uh, Werder Bremen. Christian Pulisic, of course, 22 years old. is at Chelsea. Uh, Timothy Way is 20, and he's playing at Lille. Weston McKenney uh, in the Champions League at Juventus, only 22 years old, playing in the midfield with Ronaldo. Gio Reina has been the breakout star this year for Dortmund. Uh, along with Holland, of course, uh, but he's only 17. Uh, Tyler Adams, uh, 21 at RB Leipzig. Sergio Dest is now at Barcelona. Uh, John Brooks at Wolfsburg. Chris Richards, uh, Anthony Robertson, and Zach Steffen. Uh, Harrison, there are 10 U.S. men's national team players in the Champions League this season. How do you see them developing? I see this as an incredible opportunity, and this is something we've never really gotten to experience we're seeing an overhaul of talent coming from the u.s pouring into europe and uh it's not a our time has come kind of thing it's more of a you know here we are we're actually around now and christian pulisic kind of being the head of the spear because he was the first that was able to jump into this kind of as a as a big time player uh absolutely incredible watch um Gio Reyna, i mean this is going to be absolutely brilliant he is developing an, an incredibly gifted attacking side, to say the least. And I see his ceiling being the highest of all of them. Personally, my favorite of that bunch that I just can't get over is Chris Richards. Because for Bayern Munich to have just won the Champions League and for them to be as high caliber as they are and for Hansi Flick to come out and say two weeks ago that Chris Richards absolutely deserves minutes. I think it's a great sign. He's got the nickname Air Richards from his teammates out there. He wins aerial duel battles better than anybody. And I see his future just being incredibly bright. And we're finally going to have a piece, possibly, to sit next to either John Brooks or possibly Miles Robinson, Tim Ream, whoever it may be. We may be able to build a spine in this national team for once. So uh, so when yeah. does this team – oh, go ahead, Tanner. Well, okay, so uh, you're most excited about Gio Reyna, but I think that, and I like, I think he's going to be incredible, and he will be. Or you said Chris Richards, my bad. Um, that both of, I think both of them are going to be incredible. But the, the guy that impressed, still impresses me the most is Serginho Dest. I mean, he was at, he was developing an Ajax's academy, which is incredible, world renowned for for producing players, and he just transferred to Barcelona, like the club where Messi plays, that Barcelona. It's just bewildering to me to to think about that we have two Americans that are at Barcelona at the same time because Conrad de la Fuente um, is still in La Masia there. It's 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 really really cool to see, especially because you know we missed the World Cup in in 2018 and that was that was a blow, especially because we had such great young talent coming up. 
But I think that, that Sergio Dest could genuinely be one of the best fullbacks in the world um, if he develops into what I think he can. Um, and having that obviously is not as important, I think, for the United States as developing a spine is. But, man, when you think about it all together, it's really, really cool. And what's, what's, what's really interesting to me is that we actually have enough players in Europe right now to be able to play friendlies the next international break. Uh, they're, they're thinking of scheduling against Wales and Australia in London, despite the fact that no MLS players would be able to travel, uh, which just speaks to the, the depth of, American, of the American uh, or the U.S. Soccer Federation. Even if it's not like the quality of depth we want to see yet, it's still there. It's still over there and developing, and and that's just that's something that we've sorely, sorely missed. I think it's also we have to talk about these two because they're honestly playing such crucial. Well, one of them's playing a crucial role; the other will grow into his role. But Weston McKinney at Juventus has been um, a shock, I would say, to a lot of people because most of the summer he spent his time linked to mid-table Premier League clubs like Southampton. And then all of a sudden he is on a loan with an obligation to buy after certain things are reached in the contract with Juventus. And he's now on a Pirlo managed team surrounded by stars. I would say that Dybala and Ronaldo and some of those center backs behind them and Delict are, they're all stars and he's going to develop incredibly surrounded by a group of professionals from a club that only knows winning. And I think that is fantastic. And to touch on Tyler Adams, what a guy. I honestly believe he will be the captain of the United States national team. Uh, we're talking about somebody who is managed by probably the brightest young mind in the entire game and, and uh, Nagelsmann. And he, he's even basically the quarterback. That was the, the direct word he used to describe his role in this Leipzig team. And to just listen to him speak about the way they play and how he adjusted from learning to... Uh, I believe it was go from the box to the other side of their box in seven seconds under Peter Baas to a structured, positional, how do I help my teammates with my positioning kind of play under Nagelsmann. And he's just raised his intelligence, which has already been one of the most notable things about Adam since he broke onto the scene was his intelligence. It's absolutely incredible, and I see him making a big move away from Leipzig in the future. So uh, after all that discussion about how great our players are going to be, um, when are we going to win the World Cup? 2026. 2026. 2026. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we're all in agreement. Why? I think that by that time, we'll have developed enough. Our star talent will be in their late 20s. And if everything goes according to plan and all these guys, a bunch of them turn out, because it's not just about these guys. These are, these are what is put in front of us now. Talking about six years from now, I've watched four players sign for Europe in the last two months. Six years, we could see tons. We could see absolutely tons. It was uh, Taylor Twelman, I believe, that spoke on air uh, maybe a year ago, saying that someone in the agency world told him there will be 20 Christian politics in Europe in a year's time. And just two or three days ago, we got Bleacher Report letting us know that there are 10 Americans on Champions League rosters. And that's not even covering the other 30 just sitting in Europe, 40. But, uh, yeah, I think the development is coming along well. And academies in the MLS are growing. Players getting moves from those academies. And I think it's a really bright future ahead. Yeah, so we've been mentioning um, how well these players have been developing in Europe. 
so what does this uh, seemingly American exodus to Europe say about the their development domestically? So the United States I mean, is coming I, along in the MLS, I believe. I think they've taken the right steps. I think owners have seen what could be put in front of you when very successful. I think uh, everyone saw Atlanta United and really enjoyed what they saw. They saw an attacking style with a good manager, young players. Not We, we actually only had one American who was not getting much playtime in Miles Robinson, and then, of course, at the, at the back you had Brad Guzan. But you see opportunities for young players at Red, New York Red Bulls, for example, and Sporting Kansas City. These are two clubs notable for their academy talents already, but it's growing. LAFC, growing their academy talents. Atlanta United, growing their academy talents. More teams are seeing the benefits and are wreaking the benefits of paying for youth. And I think that this is big in making this league a developmental league. This league is far, far off from becoming some sort of incredibly competitive league in the world. And I even still see some issues if we were to become a developmental league, even winning the CONCACAF Champions League. still think Mexico's top clubs are, are better than ours. But this league has potential to churn out more top talent than a lot of, a lot of other leagues around the world, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, that, that Harrison hit the nail right on the head there. I mean, it's, you're seeing development with with some of these uh, some of these academies, and that that's really what we need. We don't have like an established academy system with with U.S. soccer here, not in the same way that like Germany or Spain or some of the big footballing powers do. Um, so we have to depend on on our clubs to uh, to develop the the talent in their areas, and it's it's interesting to see. And I really do like what we've seen uh, with the MLS moving towards more of a developmental league as opposed to a, a retirement league or a fourth or fifth tier league that it was. Um, and, and so it's, it, it's really cool to see. And I think everyone prefers that. Everyone would prefer to see 20-year-olds come in, play great for two years, and they get a big transfer to wherever, whether that be Saudi Arabia or, um, or Newcastle. I mean, like it, it, there are tons of people in Atlanta who started watching soccer because of Atlanta United and then continued to follow Miguel Almoron as soon as he left. And it, it, it provides that doorway for, for getting more people into the sport, um, which I think is, is almost as important as the development itself, because if you don't have people who want to play the sport, you're not going to have the talent to develop the sport. Um, and that's what, that's the, one of the biggest things that I think we've seen with the, the change in, in uh, priorities for the MLS. Yeah, I think the MLS is basically on the perfect path to turn this league into a league that turns out good players. Because you got to think, let's not let's let's take away let's shy away from the guys that are in the Champions League. We had Reggie Cannon and Anthony Robinson make moves to Europe this year, and I think Reggie Cannon's move from FC Dallas is excellent. That was a, a great move to uh, Boa Vista in the first league in Portugal, and Anthony Robinson arriving at Fulham, where he was originally linked to go to. Uh, I believe it was AC Milan, and that fell through, and now he's now he's with Fulham. And then yeah, he he had like he had gone in for his medical and everything at AC Milan, and then there was a haggling over the fee with Wigan, and I mean Wigan was having their their financial issues, so it was understandable. And then he went to Fulham for like two million, which was a fifth of the price that he was going to go for. 
So even when we're not getting guys at Champions League caliber clubs, we're getting them to the right places and the right situations. And the U.S., the, the MLS is churning out talents. Like, this isn't just something we say to promote the league. We have no affiliation with the MLS on this podcast whatsoever. But you just have to think, Gianluca Busio and Brendan Aronson are the perfect examples right now. And I will say this, Brendan Aronson, it's already in agreement that come January, he will move to RB Salzburg. And Gianluca Busio has a lot of people looking at him. He's a bit more raw. They're both rather raw. And they're going to turn out to be good players more than likely. But it's about when they move. It's about how long they spend kind of harnessing their game. And that's the problem for Busio. He's needing to develop certain aspects of his game before and a European league are kind of ready to take that shot on him. But Aronson, he's already gotten his move to Salzburg. And these clubs that, you know, we, we, we tend to frown upon the clubs that uh, have other clubs connected to them but don't like to really, they like to pretend they're different entities entirely. But it is beneficial to have a Red Bulls in this, in this league. It really is. Um, you know, you can say what you want about their fans and, you know, anything about, anything about the club. They churn out talent just as good as anybody in this league. Caden Clark... This weekend, the newest breakout star in the MLS, 17 years of age, scores his first goal for the club this weekend against Atlanta United in a 1-0 win. And then, I believe this morning, we were all privy to the news that as soon as he turns 18, not RB Salzburg has his rights, RB Leipzig has his rights. So we're talking about a team that consistently finishes top four in Germany, already awaiting a young 17-year-old midfielder in America. The scouting system runs deep in this country, and we have satellite academies from Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Chelsea in this country, and they turn out good players, and they send them to these and MLS Everton, clubs. And Everton now. <laughs> Absolutely. Satellite clubs <laughs> from <laughs> Europe are everywhere. That was one in Miami. <laughs> yeah, so I, what you were mentioning with, with Salzburg and, Le- and like the Red Bull apparatus in particular, and I mean, the City Group has one too with, with NYCFC, and so it's... It, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. It's incredible to see people get those opportunities, especially at a young age where they can go over and maybe have already learned how to play, but then they can adjust to the European leagues before they move on. And we've seen Salzburg be such a great springboard for so many players. Uh, Nabi Keita, and I think Sadio Mane was there too, and I really don't want to just name Liverpool players, but those <laughs> are two incredible ones. Um, and I think part of, another thing that goes a little under the radar is Jesse Marsh who's the manager at Salzburg, he is American. He is one of the best managers, well, certainly the probably the best manager in Austria, um, but he's in that Red Bull apparatus, and it wouldn't surprise me if when Julian Nagelsmann goes on to another job, I mean, it would have to be a top Premier League job or a top Spanish job or Bayern or Dortmund that we would see Marsh get, get hired at, uh, at RB Leipzig because they know him. And to continue developing... Their talent, they trust it. And so I think that Americans should a thousand percent trust the Red Bull system with developing our talent. Yeah, I believe that's a really quiet, good way to kind of have an in route for the United States is to have this connection to a big entity such as Red Bull. I mean, they have their way into the highest level of competition in Europe now. You can be in Champions League for either one of their clubs in Salzburg or Leipzig. This is perfect. The American influence in there is is growing, and we need that. And 
I love that. I absolutely love that. I like that Marsh is the manager there and that he can speak to these guys one-on-one. He can call them up, talk to them, let them know that he's very supportive and just kind of have that interaction, that connection right there to start is just perfect. All right, so we've been talking a lot about the U.S. national team, but now on to some teams that have played uh, in the past week and, of course, the Nations League in Europe. Uh, the most notable matchup uh, of the, uh, I believe, third match week of games um, was, of course, the England win over Belgium 2-1. to one. Uh, Of course, there were two penalties in this game. Uh, Tanner, what do you make of it, and how have... England improved from that, um, frankly, abysmal nil-nil draw to Denmark. Uh, like I, well, they played a different lineup. Um, I think that was the start of it. Um, right, you're talking about the friendly with Denmark earlier, or was there a Nations League game? There was a Nations League game. Yeah, the nil-nil in the last window. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Then I, I, I didn't know. I don't pay attention to the Nations League. <laughs> I watched this one because uh, there was a certain six foot two striker um that was playing that that i have very much a rooting interest in and specifically specifically in him not getting injured um but i mean it was it was a it was a game it wasn't a great game by either team the two penalties uh one either way i mean that that's kind of what that's what you get it was just it was it wasn't a great game um for either team i don't think um but it was it was okay it's cool that england won um, I think, again, Southgate's trust in Pickford is bewildering and probably misguided, but he hasn't messed up yet. So, Yeah, fun fact for everyone here, there was not a single left-footed player in that game. There was not one left-footed player in that starting 11. Um, there were three right-backs, though. There were three right-backs. You know what? That is incredible. And I think it's funny that we watched a game where there was little to no penetrative passes. Um, and again, the right, the right footed situation. We're talking about Kieran Trippier playing left back, left wing back, excuse me. And he's literally spending the whole game looking inside to pass sideways and backwards. What you, you negate the whole system doing that. There is no flow. Bakayo Saka, I get it. He's 18 years old. Put him on the field. What are you doing? What are you doing with this situation where you're just going to go side to side to side to side? And let's not talk about, yeah, the second goal is a deflection. That, that second goal doesn't come about if Trent doesn't put in one of those premier crosses where you get ahead to lean it back towards Mount, and then the wicked deflection comes out of nowhere. But again, your fullback supplying the creativity there. No fullback creativity on the left side the whole game. Zero. Rashford was very underwhelming, very on-brand for him recently. He's not been, not been great. Um... Maybe a lot on his mind with everything taking on British politics and whatnot. I don't know. Uh, not going to speculate. But very underwhelming. That whole left side was just terrible except for Harry Maguire. Surprisingly enough, Harry Maguire, who has re- received tons, tons of criticism, actually played the best of that left-hand, that left-hand side. I thought that Chilwell also would be a good solution for this when the time comes. So maybe, yeah. maybe we don't panic too much about it. Not a huge Southgate fan, I'll be honest with you. But, um, yeah, maybe Chilwell in there. Oh, and maybe use Jack Grealish. Maybe. In a competitive game, maybe use Jack Grealish. Just a thought. See, I've, yeah. I've heard so, of... Like, uh, yeah, go the, ahead, Tanner. The Chilwell thing. Chilwell, like, kind of shot himself in the foot there. Because he would have played. But he went to 
whose party was it? It was someone's Abraham's someone birthday. Tammy's yeah. birthday. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it was it was like go to the party, okay, but like don't take pictures of yourself. I, I don't. That's it's Sancho missed too. I mean, that was part of the reason. But I agree with you on Saka. Saka was a dire need uh, for that England side, and even Grealish, and that's what. So I have a note because I. They showed how not to use Dom, uh, Calvert Lewin, as that isolated striker, because we we've seen that under Marco Silva, it does not work with him up there alone. It, it's really bad. He can't do what he does best, just post goals, and he can't create them. He's not a creative player, uh, which I think is where you need a Jack Grealish on the left or or even through the middle, just creating and, and making those passes that make you go, "Wow, that guy is different." And and creating goals out of nothing, uh, like Trent can do that. But it, you're right. If your your creativity is coming from your right wing back, you have bigger issues than than most countries. See, my problem with Southgate is I feel like a lot of his tactics have to do with damage control, which is a lot of international football. It's it's about being flexible to kind of stretch your shape, but still maintain a certain level of structure because you don't have you're not gifted loads of times with these players and these managers you don't get to really establish a good feel all right and that's why the number one rule is why you should never run a club the way you run a national team greg bearhalter but you know what southgate he's very damage control he's very structure which is why i i do understand he likes mason mount better mason mount is very committed for the team he's one of the best runners i've seen covers a lot of ground it's very committed. Breaks up play even. Um, he likes to track back well and takes up good positions. Ball skills, they're not amazing, but they're good enough. And with Jack Grealish, you have such a a maverick character, sort of. Someone that needs to be gifted a certain level of freedom. And there is a certain level of criticism for his ability to track back and certain things like that. But there, there is no, there is no substitute for what he brings. There's no, there's nobody else in that lineup that's as direct, that's as pure on the ball with his positioning, with his movement, even his ability to draw fouls. England couldn't get in good set piece positions drawing fouls this, uh, yesterday, and with Jack Grealish, I mean, you're you're at a really good chance to get a ton of great opportunities for set pieces. And not only that, he just opens up play. Like I said, he's incredibly direct, very gifted, and he needs to be put into this side. And I get if he doesn't want to start him, and I think that it's a, a damn shame if they do 30-minute 30 30 kind of cameos for him. But you know what? It makes sense. It makes sense because they want structure. Yeah, we've been uh, spending a lot of time on Nations League, so uh, let's get back to what we all really care about on this podcast, and that is uh, the Premier League. And, of course, this week, uh, we have our resident Everton supporter on the podcast, so we are going to go right into it. It's also the first game of the weekend, waking up bright and early at 6.30 in the morning if you're in Central Time for the Merseyside Derby. Liverpool play at Goodison Park against Everton. Uh, of course, Liverpool coming off of that uh, abysmal, horrific display. Uh, 7-2 was the final score against uh, league juggernauts Aston Villa, uh, whereas wait, Everton... Wait, wait, wait. Wait, hold on. What was the score again? Uh, I believe it was seven to two. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, that was. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Tottenham vibes uh, coming off that <laughs> game. 
Uh, and, of course, Everton are undefeated, top of the table right now, uh, coming off a 4-2 win uh, against Brighton. Tanner, I don't even need to ask you a question. Uh, you're just going to talk about Everton anyways, but I'll prompt you with one anyways. Um, how do you see Everton going into this game with the momentum that they've been building so far this season? So this is uh, the way that I've been feeling, uh, I mean, just about this season. I, I think at the beginning we were a little hesitant, but as we've seen more positive and positive results, you kind of get that little feeling of hope, um, which hope for an Evertonian uh, isn't always great. Uh, it seems like you're always one injury or one deflected ball off a crossbar or whatever from from going back into the depths of depression. Um, and to be quite honest, it's weird seeing a team play that you're cheering for and being confident that they will see out whatever result they get and that they will all play hard and that they're being managed by a world-class manager. And I think that's really where it starts. Um, I, I just, I'm, I'm really excited to be honest about this about this season. I think if if we win the Merseyside Derby and it is a convincing win, even if it's not, even if it's a 1-0 win where Pickford makes seven mistakes but somehow none of them go in and the only goal is because Allison or Adrian got he was off the field and passed the net. Like I if we manage to win, I genuinely believe that we can get top four and i think if we win and we don't get top six that would be not a disappointment because it gets us in the Europe, but a little bit of a letdown if we win i think that we could be and i wrote this and i want to make sure i get the wording right if we win and it's convincing or not i think we may have a lesser type title run because what what was so improbable about Leicester. Obviously, they were Leicester. They, they had done really nothing the year before. I think they finished 15th the year before. Um, but it was the fact that kind of everyone else had down years or people were beating each other up. And it, it, the point total that they won with was lower than, than what would have been expected. And I think we're kind of seeing the same thing with this year. Uh, City's not where they needed to be. United is questionable, like always. Spurs can even have the off game. Villa is in second place for goodness sake. Like it's anything can happen. And I just, I'm it's very, very optimistic, which I try and avoid um, with Everton. At least. Um, but even if we draw, I think we get top six, maybe even a cup, probably the Carabao. If we lose, I'd still feel good about our chances for the Carabao and even top six or seven. Like it's, it's a good, it's a good thing to go in where you're three points clear at the top of the table. Another outside note also, about Everton, I really think that the limitations on this team are going to come from Yuri Mina and Jared, uh, Jared um, excuse me, Pickford, Jordan Pickford. Those are the two limitations. And last yeah. week, Yuri Mina was kind of managed when they signed Ben Godfrey. I don't believe we discussed that because it was very last minute yeah. deadline day move. Excellent move. Absolutely yeah. excellent move. Well, so uh, yeah, I've heard, I've listened, I've listened, and I've heard your your like judgment of Yerry Mina and I agree. Like he is slow and plodding. But he still has a little bit of get up in him. Like he can run. It just doesn't look very pretty. <laughs> um but like Michael Keane and and Yerry Mina, 
are not our number one center back combination. At this point, it is Michael Keane and Mason Holgate. And to be quite honest, I know Michael Keane's playing great for England. I know he's playing great for us. He had a assist. I don't even remember who it was against. I think it was one of the cup games. He had he did like a Cruyff turn and then launched a oh yeah, it was the cup game against West Ham. He did a turn, ran past his man, and then launched a long ball to Dom that Dom like controlled with one touch and placed past the keeper. It was just gorgeous and something I haven't seen out of a center back. Like any center back that wasn't named David Louise or Virgil Van Dyke. And it, it it was incredible. But so I think him and Mina play those similar roles, and Holgate is the more fast, the, the the one that you can you can have on break where he can come back and make that tackle. But Godfrey would play that role. So I think those two sets of two different players that can play together in a in a in a center pairing is is going to be important. And I don't so I don't think that Godfrey will get a start at center back anytime soon, uh, or not anytime soon. At least next week, just because we may be down both of our right back. Um, so Godfrey may have to slot in at right back. Or we could go into it with a three, um, a three at the back, which wouldn't surprise me, but we'd be kind of weak down the right side. Um, so I feel like we could end up lining up with Godfrey at right back. Um, but yeah, so Godfrey yeah. is better than I expected, to be honest. And I just have watched some tape on him, and he, he looks like the ball-playing center back that I think everyone in Europe wants. Yeah, speaking of uh, the the idea of playing three at the back um, against this Liverpool team, do you think uh, do you think you could give us a rundown on Everton's change in tactics uh, from last season to this season? And then also, do you think that Everton are going to change their tactics at all uh, for this game specifically? I can do you one better. I can give you a complete breakdown of every single Everton game up to this point. That was played in the league. I don't want to go through the Carabao Cup. Because I don't <laughs> you don't have to. Um, okay, so the first game, Spurs away. We won one nothing. I I know Spurs did not play well, but I'm really kind of annoyed at people acting like Spurs is a terrible team. Uh, the biggest thing for us, honestly, was not that, hey, it was Spurs. It was that we finally got over the, ten- top, top, over the hump against a team in the current Big Six. We hadn't won away against the big six opponent since 2013. And it was our first away win against Spurs since 2009. And frankly, it's a game that we would have lost last year. And that's almost entirely down to the fact that we dominated the second half of the game. And that was not possible without the addition of James, Allen, and Decore. So what they have done to change Everton's tactics is incredible. I mean, I know that Carlo Ancelotti is very, very malleable when it comes to formation. And quite frankly, a, a genius when it comes to some things. Often he can be a little too rigid with his squad structure. But he he is a three-time Champions League winner for a reason. And what we've seen with the way that he's set up, it's a 4-4-3 in name. But, and in defense, it is kind of a 4-4-3, I guess. But what we do is we have our two center backs sit back. Black will bomb up and down. Luca Dean is, and uh, don't jump down my throat about this, Chris, but he is the best two-way left back in the Premier League. Mm, mm. Andy Robertson is better. Andy Robertson is a better attacker than Luca Dean, but I don't think that he is anywhere near the defender that, that Luca Dean is. And part of that has to do with the fact that Richarlison is playing on that left, and Richarlison is one of the best defensive forwards in the league obviously, like behind Firmino, because he's a defensive 
uh, false nine or whatever he is. Um, but I just, I think that it, it helps us. It helps structure. And then also we've seen Seamus Coleman make runs up. And when Seamus Coleman does that, Thomas kind of drifts into that playmaking space, which is where he really, really shines. He plays those diagonal balls to, um, to Hama or to Richarlison or to, to and it's, literally I'm pretty sure the first time I saw one, I'm like, how did he hit that? Absolutely perfectly. And then he did it again. I'm like, he can just do that all the time. You're telling me that James Rodriguez has the ability <laughs> to perfectly wait, a like 50 yard cross field pass and hit a man in stride. I'm pretty sure it was that game or maybe the rest West Brom game where he made a pass that surprised actually everybody, even the person it was intended to. Luca Dean did not know it was coming until it hit him in the foot. And that was just kind of an adjustment to getting ready to, to or getting used to, to Hamed. And being able, so what's allowed our wingbacks or our fullbacks to bomb forward so much is the fact that we have Allen and Decore. Allen is something we've missed since Ghana's left. Idrissa Ghanagay, who went to PSG. Um, he's that kind of pit bull in midfield who will run around, make a tackle, stop everything. And Decore can track back with the best of them. I, he chased down Wilfred Zaha, who had a one-on-one opportunity and stonewalled him, just stopped him dead in his tracks. It was, it was incredible as an Everton fan to see that because that usually doesn't happen. Um, but in defense or in offense, I'm sorry, in attack, we'll have Richarlison and DCL acting as strikers as they are. Uh, Decore and Allen will kind of cover the wings that are vacated by by both of the the fullbacks that are that are that are bombing forward. Thomas drifts into that playmaking space, uh, and then Andre Gomes and or uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson play in that modified, like, number eight slash, uh, or a playmaking number eight kind of role where they can play the pass that, that gets it to James or to Richie or to Dom that allows them to create. Um, but in defense, it's still a very solid defensive formation. James has worked hard on defense, which has been really surprising to me. Um, and that that formation allowed us to truly dominate Spurs in the second half. And again, I know Harrison, you're not a huge fan of Pickford and to be quite honest right now, I'm not either. Um, but we would not have won that game without him. He made two one-on-one saves against Son that were why he is so, so frustrating because he makes these miraculous reaction saves. But when a ball is like floating towards him, he knocks it down instead of trying to catch it. It, it, it's that stuff that's so, so infuriating. Um, but I think that was, uh, again, a win that we wouldn't have had. It was a psychological hump we had to get over, much like the Derby is. Um, and then the next game, we beat West Brom 5-2. to two. And I think this is kind of where James showed how valuable he could be to us for obviously not the first time because of all of, again, all of those cross-field balls to Richarlison were, were something out of, like, a dream for me in the first game. But uh, West Brom showed what he can do. Uh, the first goal was uh, that was allowed by, uh, by us. Dion Ghana made a great run. And uh, Mina just wasn't decisive enough and didn't step up. Um, and Pickford was probably not in the best position uh, and allowed the first goal. But we managed to go back and hit them immediately uh, with Dominic scoring that weird Technically would have been offsides had Richarlison hit it, but he wasn't. So it was a backheel goal from like inch away. Um, but that was, that kind of got us back to 1 1. And then right, this, right before halftime, we were lucky to be tied in halftime. Right before halftime, 
Tommy keeps it on the left foot and drills it into the bottom corner. That is just a strike that I haven't seen from an Everton player consistently. And he's shown that he can hit that consistently. We And it was a moment of quality that we sorely lacked the last few years. On top of that, he very clearly urged Kieran Gibbs, who after the reboot, he kind of like bumps into. I mean, like, it was just like he was slowing down. He like ran into him a little bit. And then Kieran Gibbs like lost his temper and hit or slapped him in the face, which is a straight red. And that totally changed the dynamic of the game. Um, and so West Brom's first goal did highlight our issue with our back line, um, which I think Mina is not the ideal partner for, for Michael Keane, but he's what we got right now. Um, the second one, though, like, Pickford, I guess, could have positioned himself better, but it was just a world-class free, free kick from Mateus Pereira. Um, but after that, last year, it's another game we would have maybe, maybe lost, probably drawn. Uh, we would have folded last year, even against 10 men, but the change of attitude that the new signings and Ancelotti have brought us, cost put three more past them and take the game. And it's, it was something refreshing to see. Uh, and Pittsburgh making a little bit of a mistake was, again, where the fan base kind of started to turn against him, although there's always a section that is consistently against him. Um, and then we went away at Palace, which I think was a bigger test than people are making it out to be. Because Palace has been incredible this year. And he also would have a thousand percent lost that game last year. Kuyate's header was pretty unstoppable, but in the second half, Palace was better side and they were constantly on the front foot. Or he stayed strong and held until we could break it uh, and then get that penalty, which, I, yeah, it was soft. Dinier headed it straight down into his hand, but his hand was away from his body and, like, by the law, it's a handball. Um, and then Richie did his weird Pogba. Jorginho hop skip thing or whatever and, and put it away that was a, that penalty almost gave me a heart attack but it went in so that's all that matters uh, and this is kind of where I think Mina proves his worth he was so important in that game he won something like 11 of his aerial duels all 11 of them Keen Mina pairing isn't our best uh, as I said the rotation of Keen slash Mina or and Holgate or Godfrey will be solid solid options at the back. Um, and then Pickford couldn't really do much on the goal. And so Brighton is where we kind of see Pickford's idiocy rear its head. Um, we very easily could have won that 4 nothing if not for Pickford's error and a world-class volley from Basuma at the end. It was a, it was a, cancel, it was a consolation goal, but it was gorgeous. Um, we played exciting a football, exciting football, and again, we saw what Hamas can do. Again, it still amazes me that he is to see him in blue or yellow or that like teal green that we have now is just insane to me. Um, but yeah, I think he scored two goals and had an assist, and I'm pretty sure he passed the assist on the on the other goal. But yeah, Pickford's errors are uh, pretty significantly weighing on the fan base, at least. Uh, and again, it's the messing up simple save and decisions that any competent keeper should make. And I think Ancelotti recognizes that the lack of competition is one of the reasons for Pickford's poor performance. And I really do think that's why Gareth Southgate trusts him so much, because he knows he has Nick Pope challenging him. He knows he has uh, Dean Henderson behind him. And it's, it's kind of giving him the, the kick in the butt that he needs. And I think that's one of the reasons that we went in and bought an established international keeper uh, in Robin Olsen, albeit... He isn't really an upgrade. 
he maybe would be a downgrade. We don't really know. Uh, he's just for, for Sweden, and he's kind of been out of uh, out of favor at Roma. Um, but he does put four and half arms, which is something that Jordan Pickford does not. Um, so I think we're going to deal with Pickford for the rest of the year. And if that doesn't improve, we may go for an upgrade uh, at keeper, maybe in the winter if he's really, really bad, maybe in the uh, hopefully next summer. And with European football, whether that's the Conference League, the Europa League, I'm praying the Champions League, we could target a world-class keeper. Um, and so the two that I have written down are uh, John Luigi Donnarumma. And, of course, Donnarumma is a with East but he's a agent next summer. And, you know, maybe Carlo can work his magic uh, and talk to some of his former players at AC Milan that may have some pull there, like Paul Maldini or any of the other greats that he managed. Uh, and Andre Onato would be a for me because he is big. His distribution skills are almost unmatched. He's, he, I think he's a complete goalie that will be hopefully at everything, but if not, he'll be at a top, top, top club in the Premier League, in the Champions League, uh, or, or whatever. He may end up at Barcelona if they decide to move on to Ter Stegen. As opposed to the actual derby, again, I, I, will, I will actually get there. But that was my season recap, and I've, I've been wanting to come on. I know like, it, like y'all can't talk about us as much as I want to talk about us all the time. Um, but thank you for the, the mentions that we've gotten. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, Alan... Allen playing in this game is going to be a huge factor. And if he plays, I think we can win and potentially even dominate the game because he is what truly separates our midfield from our midfield last year. Like, we, yeah, we didn't have a Decore type player, but Allen is that that player running around like his hair is on fire, doing everything he can to stop the other team. Um, but he's still recovering from that groin injury. Um, Hoping it's not as bad. Ancelotti said he could be back. Um, but if he's not, then we may see Fabian Delph. Um, or we could see Gilfie Sigurdsson uh, play in a Decore role and Decore kind of play as a true CDM, a true number six. Um, I'm pretty – don't don't jump down my throat about this either. I'm pretty confident in Coleman being able to deal with Mane, and that was before I had heard that Coleman may not play. Um, just because he did that the last – last two derbies. He, he did well with shutting down Mane. Um, as much as you can shut a world final like him. But I think the game is going to be won or lost again, if Allen is playing. If Allen is not playing, then your midfield could potentially just override us. Um, but I also don't know who's um, not COVID positive <laughs> in your midfield. Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I know Nabi Keita just tested positive. Uh, a few days ago, um, but we're we're not sure when that um, test was administered. So there's a there's a slight possibility that he could return. Uh, Jordan Henderson played for the England team, so there's a good chance that he'll be starting. Uh, and then Tiago has recovered. There were pictures of him walking around um, Liverpool uh, two days ago, so he will definitely be playing. Okay, then I'm I'm saying that we're. We're 100% healthy outside of Coleman, or no, including Coleman, including Coleman. Maybe Coleman comes back and decides to turn the clock back a couple of years like he's been doing all season. 
Um, with Dini bombing forward and Richarlison checking back, I feel like Sala and Trent will have their hands full defensively. But that will be such an interesting matchup to watch uh, because Sala and Trent are probably the best right-sided attacking combination in the world, if I had to guess. And uh, it'll be just really, really cool to see what happens. If Dine can get back quick enough, if Richarlison can be as quality as we know that he can be. Um, but that will also be if he sets up in our defensive setup. If he usually sets up about in the left half of center midfield, and then as teams start to break, if they break down that left side, the Everton left side, he will go over there and cover and try and shut down. If he's playing, that will be the, the area that's the pitch to watch. That about front third in front of Trent. Um, like right past the, the midfield line. Um, but it'll be it'll be a good game. I actually think that like I'm feeling confident going into it, um, but that's solely because we're coming in off of a seven game winning streak confidence, which is the most games in a row we've won since like nineteen eighteen or something. Start of season. So I mean it's 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 good to be an Evertonian right now, and if we were to beat you all uh, in the Derby, it will be that much better. So, yeah, it, it definitely seems like an interesting time to be an Everton fan, uh, and it it sounds like it's going to be a very interesting game, especially considering uh, how well they've been doing, as you said uh, in your in depth analysis. We thank you very much for that. Uh, definitely. Actually, learned... Hold on, I forgot to mention something. Oh yes, go ahead. I genuinely didn't mention Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's currently on pace for 57 goals in league, which obviously he's not going to do that. That would be absurd. But he has six goals in four games, and I think that it's shown that Carlo Ancelotti and the influence he's had, and James Rodriguez in particular, uh, has given him the opportunity to shine as that one-touch finisher. A lot of people he can see, including Carlo, who didn't compare him to Filippo Inzaghi, but who mentioned that that's who he needs to aspire to be, that one-touch poacher. Working with Duncan Robinson on his heading has been miraculous for what it's done. I, I, there was a TIFO football out that had sports, it had a sports scientist make this comparison, not like me or a journalist or whatever. They compared his leaping ability and his physicality and how he always meets the ball with the flat part of his forehead to Cristiano Ronaldo. And obviously, he doesn't get up as high as Cristiano Ronaldo. Obviously, he's not, a good, not as good at all of other things that Cristiano Ronaldo is incredible at. But his heading ability, they are the same type of aerial player. And that's, that's just something that I think has been so huge in the development of, of Dom's game. Oh, well, it seems okay, like it, it's, it's going to be uh, a race for the golden boot between um, DCL and Ollie Watkins at this point, if he continues playing uh, the way that he played against Liverpool uh, last week, or however many penalties, however many penalties uh, Jamie Vardy can win, uh, Jamie Vardy or even Bruno Fernandez at this point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, but um, I, I think for all the listeners, uh, uh, it, it might be time to talk about some of the other games, even if they're less important, uh, happening over the There's weekend. <laughs> Uh, yeah, between two uh, two mid-table teams, I believe. Um, Arsenal play Manchester City uh, this week. Of course, Arsenal came off of that 2-1 win against Sheffield United. They also uh, managed to beat Liverpool in the Carabao Cup. 
And uh, Manchester City came off of that um, uh, strategic masterclass um, that Leeds performed against them to end up in a 1-1 draw. Um, Harris, I want to ask the first question for you. Um, considering that uh, Party just signed uh, with Arsenal, do you think he's going to start this week? And if he does, what would his impact be? Uh, I don't think he'll start this week. I think he probably needs a little time to adapt, I think, to play for a manager like Mikel Arteta. You've probably got to take some time out to really kind of understand what he wants you to do before he can just toss you into the fire. Yeah, and uh, Arsenal also beat City 2-0 in the FA Cup last season in the in the semifinal with only four shots and 29% of the possession. Uh, Tanner, do do you think we see a similar game here? Uh, or have Arsenal really adapted since then and gotten better? I, I think Arsenal have definitely gotten better. Um, I kind of think it depends how, how Arteta will line up, whether he's conservative, um, whether he plays Buki Osaka and allows him the freedom to, to, to attack um, whoever is playing it right back for uh, for City. I mean, it's, it, I'm also kind of interested to see if, if Pep, does that thing where he like overthinks everything and completely mm. changes how his team plays when they really should not. I really think this will determine how city season goes and whether or not they can, they can bounce back, uh, which I mean, I think they can uh, just because like Marcelo Bielsa tactically and obviously with the, the pressure and the demanding nature that he puts on his team, they're kind of a, a pep nightmare. And I think part of the reason that Bielsa was so well-prepared against that is that Guardiola actually pulled from Bielsa. He, he, he mentioned that when he talks about his, uh, his tenants in, in football. He talked to Marcelo Bielsa and based it off of some of the things that he did uh, with Chile and with uh, the previous teams that he had managed. I think that's part of the reason that, uh, that, that City may have had such, such a tough time. It was a student going against the master. And I think that that Pep's the master in this case and Arteta's the student. So I think it'll be a really, really interesting game. I just hope Pep doesn't mess too much around. And obviously not having a true striker is, is difficult. Mm. Yes, and going from the interesting to the uninteresting, if they were to play the same time uh, in the same fashion that they had played the last game at St. James's Park, Manchester travel to Newcastle. Manchester United, of course, coming off that 6-1 defeat to Tottenham. Oh, I can see it in your face. You you don't like hearing that. Uh, but how do United bounce back from this? I think the best way to do this is to really just go and possibly make some lineup changes. Um, no Eric Bailly, obviously. Um, we're not going to have... Martial, due to the suspension, so you'll probably be able to see if Cavani's impact is going to be just right off the bat getting and going. And I'll be honest, if this team starts with Igalo up front, um, expect probably one of the worst watches of the weekend. And I believe there's a particularly poor game in Burnley and West Brom that will be battling it out for probably the least watchable game with United if they do indeed start with Igalo up front. Tanner, do you agree yeah, with not, that? Least watchable. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not watching this game. I like. I. 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 See Bruce. See Bruce. I hate the way that he sets up his team. It is just not fun to watch. And like I, I think it could be a trap for United. 
Um, but obviously they have plenty of motivation after um, last or two weekends ago, last weekend. Um, but it, yeah, no, I, I'm not planning on watching at all that game sleep. Uh, do you plan on watching the, the Burnley-West Brom game instead? Yeah, and I will say why. <laughs> I also hate Burnley. I hate Burnley for the same reason that I really don't like watching Newcastle. Join the United. club. They're just, they play boring, boring football. Sean Dyche, like, I get it. He's a good job. He's getting up. You need him to do, but he's not going to take you anywhere. Yeah, he took you to eight that one time. Um. Giangana and Vera did enough for West Brom and Callum Robinson seen him after he just I believe they, they have the ability to break down a Sean Dyche side and then uh, I, Burnley there's no way of scoring three against um, and I think I, I really think West Brom can win that game and I'm very I really like the young talent that West Brom has I uh, and of course, moving on to the highest ranking matchup of the weekend. Uh, it's a thriller, people. Aston Villa play at Leicester. Uh, Aston Villa, of course, as we mentioned, coming off that game that we don't need to say the scoreline of again. And Leicester coming off of a 3-0 defeat against West Ham United, which I believe uh, Harrison, you and David both predicted to be going down uh, this season uh, to be relegated. So Thanks for that. They seem to have flipped the script on that this season. Um, but like I said, this is number two against number three. Um, Harrison, do you see Villa delivering another shocker this week? Yes. I think this team is just absolutely everything they need to be. I think that they took and. They took a checklist of things they needed this summer, and they absolutely got all of them. Emmy Martinez, excellent. Um, the additions of Ollie Watkins and Matty Cash, excellent. I mean, <laughs> Ollie Watkins just had an unbelievable game, and Matty Cash has been quietly one of the best buys into the Premier League. I absolutely love the guy, and it finally gives them that outlet on that right side, possibly to link up with whoever is put on that right side. And... It just gives them, it gives them a little bit more. There's more to this team. Ross Barkley in there. There's just more. There's a great link up in midfield now, or whatever you want to call Jack Grealish's position with this team, because he genuinely just has a license to roam. The combination play that he's going to be able to bring about, and the the overloads that they're going to be able to create, and just kind of everything that they've got going for them going forward, is good. And when you think about their back line, you have Tyrone Mings, great center back. And then you've got a good, good goalkeeper in Emmy Martinez, who Arsenal were heartbroken to see leave their club. So you've got a good staple in defense, a reasonably good staple in defense. I like that team. I see them winning this 2-0. Wow. Um, yeah, no, like I, I'm looking forward to this game. I think it's going to be an incredible game. Um, I think that Leicester's going to come back a little bit. They have been. Um, I I think it's been. A, I think it's going to be an exciting draw. I think it may be two, two three, three, uh, just because these these two clubs don't don't give up or don't fold anymore. Uh, like Villa had last year, they they keep fighting and they have a reason to keep fighting because when you have Emmy Martinez behind the six, you know that or in between the six, you know that he can he can make some saves to keep you in games. And when you have Jack Grealish creating almost impossible, and he finally has people 
on the end of the ball that can that can put him in the net. Cody Watkins is, is incredible, and I, I think it, along with Matty Cash, probably going to be two of the most impressive value buys. And like same as value buy after he came in for what like thirty five million pounds. I'm misquoting that uh, from Brentford is to think about uh, in the summer, and it's it, it's going to be. It's going to be a great game. I'm really, really excited for that one. Well, that does it for us on that front. The last thing that we have to do is set our predictions for this coming week, of course, is where we pick two teams where we believe we are going to win, who are going to win this week, and you cannot pick those two teams again until you've picked every other team in the Premier League. So my two teams that I'm going to pick this week are West Brom because I think that this might be one of the only games that they could win this season realistically um, against Burnley and Manchester United because um, I'm hoping that uh, they can just pull one out. Yeah, over here I've got Sheffield United beating Fulham to grab their first win of the season, and I'm going to go against the grain here. and I'm going to choose Burnley because, God, Deshaun Deitch have to get something going there. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with my with my uh, going with from over Burnley, and uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Palace over Brighton. Uh, that that would be Aha against Lampy. It'd be the best matches to watch too. Right. Well, that does it for the show this week. Thank you for tuning in, Tanner. Thank you for being on the show again. You're always welcome, uh, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stoppage Time. You can follow us on Instagram at stoppagetime91.1 for news, updates, and more. Be sure to tune in next week for another great episode on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts.